0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, a recording from the launch of Kill Your Darling's new Australian fiction anthology for 2022. This is Kill Your Darling's fourth annual collection of short fiction, and features some of Australia's best-loved writers, alongside some exciting new voices. At the event, we were lucky enough to hear work by Chloe Wilson, Jack Venning, and Maxine Benham-Clark. And I'm glad to be able to share the recording of the writers reading their own work aloud, as it is one of the best ways to experience the writers' craft. I hope you enjoy. Good evening, everybody. My name is Nico. I'm one of the staff here, one of the events team, one of the buyers. And I'm very, very glad to welcome you all here tonight to celebrate this wonderful anthology, this new Australian fiction. Before we get going with tonight's proceedings, before I introduce everyone, I would like to take a minute to acknowledge that this is stolen, unseated Indigenous land. This is the Kulin country and the people who are the traditional custodians here are the Wurundjeri people and I think it's right and only apt to pay respect to elders of the past, present and those to come. It is my great pleasure to introduce the real host for tonight who is the person who's edited this wonderful volume. ...Susie Garcia, who will be introducing everyone else.
1: Thank you, Nico, for that introduction and for the acknowledgement of country. I would also like to take this moment to extend this acknowledgement further. As we come together to celebrate writers from all around the continent... ...including Indigenous writers who contribute their stories... Kill Your Darlings acknowledges that New Australian Fiction is created on unceded, sovereign, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands. We pay our deep respects to First Nations elders, custodians and storytellers. What we call Australia will always be Aboriginal land. It's so nice to see everyone here today celebrating with us. Last year we had to do this over Zoom and it's not the same, so thank you everyone for turning up. It's especially wonderful for you all to be here to celebrate short stories... ...which can be somewhat of an underappreciated art form. As a bookseller, I can tell you they sometimes are a bit of a hard sell. And I don't know why. In our time poor days, I'll argue that short stories are the balm we need. I've been lucky enough to work on two of these anthologies... ...filling these years with short fiction... ...and it has been a respite from the news cycle, from doom scrolling... ...from the uncertainty of all the chaos of recent times. But far from pure escapism, I think fiction can also make us feel connected to each other... ...to what it means to think and to feel and to be alive. And that's definitely the way it's been for me. In short space, short stories take us into different worlds. They push up against what is conceivable and open our eyes. They make us laugh, they make us think. And as in the case with a few stories in this collection, they can even make you cry... Writers who take up the form of success do so with a level of craft that is often underestimated. A short story by its very concise nature requires both a leap of faith and brilliant experimentation. And all the writers in the collection have done it. Tonight we have three contributors to this year's anthology who will be reading from their work, sharing their creativity and inventiveness. First up, please let me introduce you to Chloe Wilson. Chloe is an award-winning poet. ...the author of the highly acclaimed, weird and wonderful short story collection Hold Your Fire. Or, as one reviewer recently called her, a future Ezra Pound. But Chloe has still some time to work on the beard. (laughs) Please give Chloe a warm welcome.
2: Hi. So, um, my story is called Lifestyle Creep. And the excerpt that I'm going to read from it takes place during a hair transplant procedure... I asked Verne about his plans for the weekend. I'm supposed to be clearing out Mother's house, he said. I'm dreading it. Last time I tried, I wound up just sitting there, staring into space. I couldn't touch anything. It must be very difficult for you. All the emotional labour. Dr Goss looked up at me. Despite the binoculars attached to his face, I could tell he was rolling his eyes. The light bounced off his scalp. Dr Goss was glossily, fastidiously bald. "'It's not that,' Verne said. "'Mother wasn't sentimental, and neither am I,' he sniffed. "'It's just, what do you do with it all? "'Part of me wishes someone would just come along "'and set the house on fire, and then, whoosh.'" He flicked his hands to indicate the hungry wash of flames over a house. "'And mother was always so fussy about her things,' he said. "'I don't know why,' I was always saying, get rid of this junk, Mama. Get something practical, go to Ikea. That old furniture was hell on her back. But she refused. If I ever set foot in an Ikea, she said, shoot me right then and there. I pictured an elderly woman splayed out dead in an Ikea, columns of people moving around her body like ants around a stone. But something else had struck me in what he said, that old furniture. I licked my lips. Your mother had a lot of old things. I studiously avoided the words that connoted value. Antique. Vintage. You can say that again, said Vern. Hardly bought a new thing after she was married. When was that? 1965. I felt a rush, my heart constricting with excitement. Over the years I'd worked for him, Dr Goss had gained a sense of my tastes. He paused, with a follicle hovering to say, Joshua here is fond of old things. Really? said Verne. As it happens, I said, I'm looking to furnish a little place. Vern was only too happy for me to come over and have a look. I could have whatever I wanted, he said. I would be doing him a favour. This exchange with Vern cheered me considerably. Prior to it, I'd received an unsettling email. It was from the workshop of Signor Tochi, maker of bespoke men's shoes. Signor Tocci was nearly 100 years old and lived in a tiny monastic town in Italy. He'd been a cobbler of choice to the European intelligentsia of the 1960s. I'd read an article about him, which was accompanied by photographs of starkly lit chisels and shoe lasts. The spirit of each man, Signor Tocci had said, can be seen in his shoes. Is the man a maverick, a lover, a diplomat? A general? His shoe must communicate this. A shoe can orient a man towards his destiny. Yes, I'd thought, nodding. I have a destiny, and to reach it, I require a pair of Signor Tocci's shoes. I knew I should wait until I had the money, but with each passing day, there was a real risk Signor Tocci would die. The article disclosed that he still smoked a packet of unfiltered gaulois every day. To have the shoes made required a long and torturous series of emails between me and the workshop. One of Signor Tocchi's assistants had asked me to not only measure my feet, but to send photographs of them. Overexposed and in extreme close-up, they seemed distasteful, even obscene. I saw that my feet looked like they were attached to the end of a maniac, or worse, like they may have been the source of his mania. <laughs> Your feet are not a good shape, the assistant wrote. Your feet are bad. (laughs) Signor Tocci made the shoes despite my bad feet. They were double monks in a tobacco-coloured leather, supple and shining and handsome. And when I wore them, I was supple and shining and handsome. No one would know about my maniac feet or about the humiliating process I had undergone to acquire a disguise for them. I wore them every day. Every day I could look down and think, Finally! Finally! I am in control of my life. I had been queasy, however, when I received the invoice. I resolved this feeling by making the first two payments on a new credit card whose limits seemed dizzyingly capacious. This was my third credit card. When I wasn't filled with dread, I was almost impressed at how much debt I'd managed to accrue. It was astonishing to me that I'd been given one credit card, let alone three... With a certain amount of nimble thinking and timely movements of modest sums of money, I was managing to keep all of my credit cards alive with minimal demands from the banks. I'd even received an offer for a fourth card, which I was seriously considering. But the tide of my debt was rising. I didn't have enough credit left to pay the final and largest instalment on the shoes. I was now receiving regular emails from Mr Totchy's assistant, which, while unfailingly polite, ...had a distinct and escalating sense of menace. Mr Veal, said the one I received on the day of Vern Lund's transplant... ...the time has come for you to pay.
1: (laughs) And thank you to
2: Susie and everyone at Kill Your Darlings for including me.
1: Next up, I bring you Jack Benning. Jack's work has appeared in Overland, Lift a Brow, The Guardian... ...and many places elsewhere. Most of what he writes, though, goes into small-town grievances... ...a fictional community newsletter about an anonymous town with an owl problem... ...which has gone out every few months since 2018. Jack is here to read a story which last week the Saturday paper said... ...reads as if Franz Kafka was brought in last minute as a script doctor... ...the weekend at Bernie's. Please give it up for Jack.
3: Thanks guys and thank you Susie. And the excerpt I'm going to read for my story is a little way through... It's about a guy who goes to dinner with his estranged, kind of dysfunctional cousin who he hasn't seen for a long time. I'd never been to the Chinese restaurant, which sat at the end of my block. At 7pm, I went down through the fire escape and walked the long way around. Nobody on the street would see where I'd come from and I could avoid being cornered in the lifts by anyone I may have wronged. My building was old and treacherous, close enough to smell the river but not enough to see it. Every week or so, someone was toppling from a balcony or dying loudly inside a decaying ensuite. Sharp debris fell from the hands of the children on the high floors and flew out of the dusk to scatter the jogging clubs below. Nobody knew I lived there. I could step into the restaurant like anybody off the street, brush the leaves from my shoulders and expect warmth like anybody, ask for a table in the back somewhere soft and out of the light. We don't have anywhere like that, said the waiter. It's been a while since I was here, I said. What kind of water do you have now? (laughs) He looked at the coat I was handing him, my best one, my only one, like it was a court summons. He led me to a table so close to the kitchen that the kitchen door almost graced my back each time it swung. There's only one kind kind of water, really, the waiter told me once I was seated. It depends where you want it from or what you're expecting to get from it, I guess. What are you expecting to get from it? ''Do you want me to do your job for you?'' I said, picking up the menu and trying to find the water section. (laughs) ''We're busy tonight,'' he said, stepping away, though the room couldn't have been more than half full. Jackson wasn't there and he wouldn't be there for some time. I'd already picked the dishes I'd be ordering for us from a curling takeaway menu I'd found on the street weeks ago. If the timing worked out, I could be done within half an hour and be back in my apartment before Jackson had even finished complaining about the drinks menu.'' I could watch him arrive late, waving his long arms at the taxi, never quite catching on to the puzzle of his own life. If he tried to follow me out, I knew an alley a block over I could lose him down easily enough and the service door of an industrial bakery that was often unlocked. I was always good at improvising. I had a talent for absolute silence. My hands were strong in a crisis despite my occupation which was totally composed of making calls to people who sounded a few steps away from disappearing completely. I'd learned not to wonder how much time had passed between the present and the big moments of my life when everything held promise. History felt like a chore I'd put off doing until it was too late. Who needs that worry on top of everything else? I had my own apartment now. I listened to classical music. Even that was a miracle, something that could fall apart if someone paid too much attention to it. It had taken me years to find that kind of balance, yet I'd come to see Jackson all the same. I recognized Jackson immediately when he arrived, despite the suit he was wearing. He had the bearing of a man recently returned to civilization, evolutionarily troubled. He was lugging alongside him something hefty. As he dragged it closer, it became recognizable. It was a person, a body, unresponsive, or at least immobile, hefted underarm like a rug. He was breathing hard as he sat down in front of me, balancing the body on an adjacent seat. He coughed a few times into his fist. My love, he said to me finally, leaning over to grip my shoulder and kiss my cheek. He was sweaty but calm. He didn't address the body other than to straighten it up in its seat. The few other diners in the restaurant watched the scene flatly. The body looked fevered and unpeaceful, like bread midway through rising. It looked ageless and was utterly without smell. I'd never heard of a dead body described in detail, let alone seeing one up close. There's an understanding, I suppose, that if you want to know something, there are many ways of finding it out for yourself, more ways than I wanted to imagine. After Jackson noticed my attention, he leaned over and masked the body with a napkin. Anyway, he said, (laughs) as if coming back to a conversation we were having. The pain in my stomach, no explanation for it. (laughs) They refused to tell me what's causing it, which I think is the fishiest part of the whole thing. Right, I said, are you worried? The waiter arrived. Jackson ordered wine without consulting the list then called him back and made him wait while he fired off his food requests. I don't think they have oysters, I said. I've threatened the doctors with everything I can, he continued, tucking some cash into the waiter's pocket. They just don't want me to see my medical records for some reason. Maybe they know I won't take it well, even if it's good news, you know. I'd never seen Jackson in long pants before. His suit was oversized, but it was still a suit. His thinning crown was swept back with something like care. He even wore a watch. When he turned to stare at the table where a group of young women were eating, I could see he no longer had a neck tattoo. Jackson, I said, what happened? Oh, this, he said, patting the body on the shoulder. I'm sorry I even brought it with me. I didn't know where to leave it. I fly out in the morning. They need me back immediately. So it's yours. Sure, for now. I'm not buying a ticket for it, though. And they go nasty if you put them in in with general luggage. They bubble up like pancake mix. His wine came and he turned back to the women with his glass raised. I put my hand out to straighten the body, which had started to slip forward. No, Jackson snapped, yanking it away from me before I could touch it. Its head was drooping to the ground. He had it by the belt. No, I'm sorry. Not that. Not that. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Jack. Our final reader tonight is a writer who really celebrates the short form. She recently tweeted that even the idea of writing a novel makes her want to stab herself in the thigh with a biro. She likely needs no introduction. But let me introduce you to Maxine Benaber clark the author of the short fiction anthology Foreign Soil, the memoir, The Hate Race, the poetry collection How Decent Folk Behave, the children's picture book The Patchwork Bike and many other books. Poetry is her first love and tonight she will be reading from Heat, her story in verse. Please give it up for Maxine.
4: Thank you very much and thank you so much to Kill Your Darlings for providing a space for short fiction. They are so needed, these spaces um, in Australia. And thanks to Susie for... ...accepting a story which was not quite in the form that (laughs) it was supposed to be. So I'm going to read from my piece, Heat, which is written in verse. So I'll read the titles of the poem first, before I read each poem. Heat. Summer sears the foots gray flats like a mean kid with a magnifying glass. Determined eyes squinting as he tilts the glass just right. In summer... This whole damn place becomes a city of heat. Glass, reflecting brick, burning metal, sunning concrete. In most of the units, the aircon cuts out at 38 degrees. Just another thing the Department of Housing promises that given time, they will attend to. Abdo. At the start of summer... All the flat's parents get together in the common room on the bottom floor and decide us kids can't go down the Maribyrnong anymore. They call a in from the parking lot ball court that Deng's dad painted on the cracked, uneven concrete last year and tell us, don't go down there. Not to catch the breeze or for any other reason, you hear. It's a whole lot of trouble. It's not safe down there. Four weeks ago... Deng's cousin, Abdo, was found floating face down in the water. Nobody really knows how he got there. Abdo was last seen being pushed around by some smart-ass coppers in the paved area outside Nicholson Street Mall. He was missing for three whole days. Then Miss Claudette, from number 10, she noticed something. Bobbing against the riverbank on her daily walk. We all went to the community centre for Abdo's funeral. We wore his favourite colour, sky blue. Abdo, he could barely speak English, but he never would have ever done nothing wrong. No one knows what those cops were hassling him for. Mum says for them, West Side black boys are just sport. It's true. The black boys really get it from the pigs for nothing at all. I'm lucky. For now, they just lean out their patrol car windows as we walk by. They just watch us brown girls. Deng says Abdo came here straight from a Refo camp. Abdo smiled a lot, used to play soccer on the oval. He was shy on his own, but Deng would bring him down. Abdo was almost six feet tall with kind, quiet eyes, but he walked like he was 65 years old, like he'd seen shit, you know? Staring down at him from our fifth floor window as he ambled across the flats, he moved like an old man. But Abdo was barely 17 and now Abdo is dead. And us ethnic flat kids, we've lost the Maribyrnong. Because when all our mums say don't go down there, take it from me. We're not trifling with that ban. Text message. Nobody is allowed up in our flat. My mum, she's scared. They might take you away, she says, because they don't like the state of the place. Dad told her that when he left and now it's constantly in her head. If they want to meet up, Deng and Daniel have to text me on my prepaid. Mum says, 12 is way too young for a mobile phone. But I kept on. It's a safety measure. I've seen some weirdos hanging about on the way home from school. I felt bad lying. But in the end, Mum got me a cheap Nokia from the Footscray Coles. No one's allowed to knock at our place. What was I supposed to do? Who's that? Mum asks when the screen lights up. It's Dan from downstairs, I say. He and Deng want to go get a freezy down at the schlev. Mum sucks her teeth in that black mum away and says, Lex, when are you going to stop hanging round with those boys? The Three Amigos. Me and Daniel and Deng, we've been tight since grade two. Miss Benedict, our teacher back then, she used to call us the Three Amigos which Mum says was a tiny bit racist, maybe. Even though Mrs. Benedict really seemed to like us three. Deng's Sudanese and Daniel's parents came here from Vietnam. My mum's family came out to Australia from Jamaica when she was five. I'm glad I roll with Deng and Dan. They're no bullshit and they don't run me off just for being a girl. I'm taller than them and much better at basketball. Freezy. Mesa and Lulu from my grade five class last year at school, they're braiding each other's hair under the ceiling fan in the bottom floor laundry room. I pass them on my way out. Come sit with us, they call. Nah, thanks, it's cool. I wrap my hand tight around the metal railing outside the laundry room. I like how it stings, how the heat leaves a burn line even on my dark skin. I watch for a moment as Mesa's fingers fly through Lulu's thick black hair, twisting it this way and that into a long patterned rope. Mum shaved my hair off for me last June in our bathroom. I told her, Knits are rife at school, Mum. If I get them too often, the teachers might come round and inspect our place. Mum rolled her eyes. She knew I was playing. But she shaved it off anyway, just how I wanted. Low. Low. ...with a Remington on a grade two. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Also want to give a thanks also to all the other contributors of this um, collection. Just a final note, this has been a huge team effort with so many people involved. From our submissions readers, our cover designer, Alyssa DiNalo, as well as editorial consultants, Jennifer Nguyen, Bianco Valentino from Black & Write in Queensland, our proofreader, Anna Thwaites, who's also here tonight. Thank you, Anna. And our typesetter Alan Varwick. I'd also like to give a special thanks to the KYD team, Alan and Maddie. thanks, you're wonderful. And also another special thanks to Beck, who has been amazing support at every stage of this journey. One last note is that keep an eye out. We'll be announcing when submissions open for New Australian Fiction 2023. And who knows, maybe one of the writers will be here tonight. <laughs> Thank you, everyone.
0: <laughs> you can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news would receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging.
4: Thank you.